Welcome back to Farm to Tabor. It's a whole new season, and we're doing a whole series on peeling back the nostalgia from the way we talk about food and agriculture to focus on people and the nuts and bolts of responsible stewardship. In the United States, we usually deploy a lot of misty, hand-wavy nostalgia when we talk about agriculture, and we do that for a reason. What's really going on in this industry is rough, and it always has been. So let's talk about why. As someone who's worked in the food system for 25 years, I think nostalgia is a trap, and why I'm doing a whole podcast series pushing back on nostalgia in the food movement. I think we could have such nice things if we worked on the food system in a way that was informed by clear-eyed, hard-nosed thinking about systems, labor, land care, financial incentives, political power. We can have a food system that makes good livelihoods instead of one that hosts seven of the 10 worst jobs in the United States. We could have clean water and thriving fisheries instead of dead zones off of our coasts. We could have healthy local and regional food be normal instead of a boutique specialty that you have to go out of your way for and drop off half your paycheck. We could have a country where anyone who wants to be a farmer can go get trained, get good at it and grow into that role instead of a country where you have to be born into land ownership or spend your prime years in a high-paying industry like finance, law, or software and push farming into the second half of your life as a second career when the time you have left by then to build that skill set and your operational strength are limited. That's the food system I want, and I think that's the food system that we do deserve. One that's not just better for the land, but is better for people. We can and we should have a food system that creates opportunity and makes good things accessible instead of an engine for exploitation. I think most people can agree that's what we want out of a food system. And I want to talk about how we can make that happen. But I think we get derailed a little bit by nostalgia first, and that's why we need to talk about it. To get a food system that works well for people in the land, we've got to talk brass tacks. How do you get good jobs? Well, that starts when someone makes enough money to pay people with it, right? And it just kind of spirals from there. It's complicated. You have to be very intentional about every single part of that system and include people as part of it, right? So fixing the food system takes a level of straight talk about money, who owns land and capital in the food system, what they do with it, and why, that many would consider mm, tacky. In the U.S., we have a culture of how farming isn't supposed to be a business. It's a lifestyle. And that's why we're supposed to talk about it in a way that's kind of swaddled in a safe little bubble wrap of nostalgia where boorish, sad things like money and racism and class don't exist. And I think that culture of not talking about money and ugly real-life people problems are why the food system seems so impossible to solve. The problem that we're facing is not that agribusiness is a powerful juggernaut that can't be beat. I don't think that's the case. I've worked with them enough to go, "Mm, these guys are beatable. The problem is too many of us who are trying to fix it are a little too chicken to talk about the real problems. We don't want to talk about the role that wealth and privilege play in our food system because on some level, we'll know that once we start digging there, we're going to find scary stuff. But folks, that is the only way forward. If we want a food system that's humane and treats people in the land right and builds us as a people instead of grinding most people down, we've got to pull on those grown-up pants and we have to grapple with how stuff really works in the food system. To do otherwise, to keep insisting that nostalgia and turning the clock back to the past will solve our problems while ignoring how much murder and genocide and forced labor went on in that actual real-life farm past. To ignore all that is top-shelf snowflake behavior. That's not what responsible grown-ups do. So if we want to make the food system better, we have got to start with the facts of how it really got to be this way in the first place. And we have to do some real talk on why we can't 
just seem to change those habits. To bring it back a little bit, why am I doing this? The thing is, the more I worked in the food system, I started a long time ago at 14 as a farmhand, uh, and the more I worked in the food system, the more I started to realize that nostalgia-based thinking is actively keeping us from solving our problems. Folks who are trying to fix the food system often feel so frustrated about how change seems impossible. Why can't we just get away from agribusiness? Why can't we just do common sense things like cover crops or grow other things besides corn? Why can't we just do it better? In my experience, nostalgia plays a huge role in the answer to why we just can't do it better. Whether consciously or not, we keep trying to fix today's problems by going back to a past when we think things worked better. The problem is, the U.S. food system didn't work better in the past. That's why I'm doing this whole series here on how the U.S. food system has always been a hot mess. I see so many people looking to an idealized version of the past as an alternative to agribusiness. That idealized version of the past usually revolves around small family farms. A lot of us are taught to see small family farms as this way around agribusiness. So, of course, if that's how we see things, we want small family farms to grow and strengthen and become mighty to the point where they're providing the nation's food supply instead of bigger, more capitalized operations. Here's the thing. If family farms of any size really had that power and could grow to play that role in supply chains without agribusiness, they would have probably done it already. We wouldn't even have agribusiness in the first place. What I learned the hard way from working closely with hundreds of family farms out there in the real world is the vast majority of them are just not capable of growing food for other people without corporate support. It's not nice to say it, which is why I had to learn this from years of hands-on experience, but it's true. It's not that family farms are secretly bad, actually, or need to be canceled. It's just that they're not equipped as an institution to do what most people are hoping they can do. The fact that family farms work off of inherited land wealth also incentivizes them to behave in ways that are often bad for the rest of the public. Family farms have financial interests. They're not actually aligned with most of the public's, and they're certainly not aligned with poor Americans' interests. But we don't talk about any of that because of the veil of nostalgia. The fact that it's taboo to talk about family farmers having any financial interests at all, or that those interests line up very well with getting corporate backup, leads us into some really interesting mental gymnastics that keep us from having to see and speak aloud at how family farms actually function in our society. We'll talk about those mental gymnastics that surround family farming quite a bit this season, but here in this season intro, let me just give you a little taste. In the food movement and amongst farmers, you'll hear a lot of talk about the so-called rise of experts in the 20th century. This is a time when, as the popular narrative goes, feed and nutrition and seed and soil experts suddenly popped out of the ether to make farming more scientific. If you actually look at the history of science and agriculture, though, the real story is a lot more interesting and complicated than that. And we're setting up to do a whole episode just on the rise of experts. For now, let's just say this. Instead of pointing to this time period as a rise of experts, we could also look at the rise of experts as an indicator that wealthy people were hoarding land even though they knew so little about farming that they needed paid experts to tell them what to do. How would our solutions to agriculture change if we took that into account? The reality is, white farmers in America have depended on outside experts from day one. We all remember the story of Tisquantum. He showed Plymouth Colony the basics of how to plant maize, which was a crop Europeans didn't know how to grow. Despite the storybook narrative of little guy homesteading, real-life colonial land grants tended to favor wealthy people with little or no hands-on agricultural experience. These folks relied on assistance to grow crops, whether that was given voluntarily or, as was more often, forced out of people who were held captive. 
enslaved black and indigenous people and the subset of indentured white servants who came from a peasant background were not just manual labor. They were knowledge workers. They were the brains of colonial agriculture. The way the United States was settled created a big old class of wealthy white landowners who were 100% reliant on a knowledgeable underclass to run their farms. It was baked in. The idea that American family farms grew organically out of traditional small farmers with deep roots in the landscape is just not what happened. The only way to make sense of our food system and how it works today is to remember where we really came from. U.S. farming grew out of a rapid-fire conquest of ecosystems that the conquerors didn't understand. And they also didn't care about competently managing land. The U.S.'s governing class cared mostly about stuffing newly conquered lands with any old white people, competent farmers or not, for political and military reasons. Remembering that will clear up a lot about our history. As time went on, the wealthier farmers with larger holdings didn't just lean on outside expertise. They also realized that the more capital-intensive farming was, which is to say, the more it relied on expensive heavy equipment, then the more it would favor the wealthiest farmers, people who could afford to buy that equipment, or at least had enough acres to put down as collateral for tractors and combines and things like that. Wealthier farmers realized that if they could turn farming into a rich man's game, they would always win. So, when wealthier farmers went to experts looking for answers, they selectively listened to the answers that involved more and more equipment, more and more capital. The drive to make U.S. agriculture big, automated, and expensive was not some weird, crazy idea that outside experts came up with. That call came from inside the house. Automation made a great way for the wealthiest farmers to consolidate land and safeguard their own personal wealth and status. After all, land is a zero-sum game. There's only so much of it, and they're not making any more. So, from a financial standpoint, if you're a farmer with some extra wealth, one of the best strategies was to simply get as much as you could, hold on to it for generations if necessary, and just wait around for population growth to make your land more valuable. Even if you're objectively wrecking it with ham-fisted, highly automated, unskilled agriculture. Like it or not, that was a winning strategy, and that is the strategy that most of the family farmers that survived the 20th century chose. That helps explain a lot of why agriculture looks the way it does today. Unlike all the neighbors and sharecroppers and tenants that wealthier farmers started pushing out a century ago, today's family farmers, who are largely descended from the wealthier farmers that were most able to start and keep up on that automation treadmill, they're still here. They're still enjoying a lot of passive wealth accumulation as land values go up and up. We'll talk farmer wealth in more depth in later episodes, but what we need to know for now is despite a good crop of sad anecdotes and cherry-picked data, U.S. farmers are financially doing quite well. And that is because of consolidation in agribusiness. It's just not nice to say it. And that is part of why farmers are so fond of blaming the rise of experts for the agricultural community's own decisions to scale up. In a way, of course blaming the experts makes sense. If you were born to a farm family in the last 50 years, and that farm's already on the automation treadmill, it's so much easier to blame the treadmill on a generation of dead nerds and experts than it is to reckon with your grandpa, maybe actually having chosen that path. It's especially true if your grandpa's decisions to capitalize actually worked out for him. And that's why you're still a farmer today as his grandson, and your grandpa's neighbor's grandkids aren't. What if today's farmer admitted that Yes, the consolidation treadmill is painful. But also, let's be honest, the decision that a couple generations ago my family made to get on that treadmill in the first place made it possible for our family to accumulate a lot of land and wealth over the last couple generations at the expense of our former neighbors. 
And now we're personally benefiting from those decisions to automate because of inherited wealth. On an individual level, it's going to be scary for most farmers to go there. That makes it harder to feel like being a farmer means you're a good person, and, and also so are your ancestors. But admitting how much mechanization and consolidation have paid off for today's farmers is also scary at a much larger level for the rest of the public. It means farmers profit from actively squeezing each other out, and maybe that's why they keep choosing consolidation. It's not forced on from the outside. It means family farmers are just another way to do capitalism. They're not an alternative to capitalism. They are capitalism. That makes it harder to present the institution of family farming as a force for tradition, wholesomeness, and common well-being. We'd have to start seeing family farms as engines of inequality, an institution that's actually pretty elitist and anti-democracy, and somehow it PR'd its way into being thought of as a bedrock of the republic. That might have been an easy enough sell back when the U.S. was young and the continent was full of land to steal and give away, but now that our land is all spoken for, mostly by quite wealthy families, and land prices are only going up, maybe it's time to reevaluate what family farmers are actually doing for our economy and for our society. Maybe it's time for the public to think about ways we can grow our own food and run our own food systems instead of waiting around and relying on hereditary landowners to have a change of heart and look out for the masses. That's something that, by the way, would be unprecedented in human history. I think most people understand that our food system works badly for most people because there are too many incentives to keep doing business as usual. But here's what we miss. Those incentives to farm badly in the United States aren't new. They've been around for a very long time. We farm and make food the way we do now because of the past. The past is how we got here to the present, right? And nostalgia-based thinking keeps us from seeing that. It keeps us trapped in a mindset of, well, we just need to turn back the clock to how things used to be. And the problem with that is that the U.S. food system has always been predatory, exclusive, and built around throwing the cheapest possible junk at poor people. That is nothing new. We've already been doing it for 400 years. Sure, the technology level today looks different, but the fundamentals of who has access to resources and money and land, and who has to just eat whatever lousy excuse for food is convenient for the upper class to throw at them, is the same as they were 400 years ago. Everything has changed, but nothing has. So, the idea that our food system used to work better is not just inaccurate, it is a specific kind of inaccurate, it's nostalgia, right? And nostalgia, it's a trap. At the end of the day, nostalgia is there to tell us that the answer is to keep doing the same things that got us here in the first place. It's not an answer. I get why nostalgia and going back to the way things used to be is such a popular way to think about the food system. It feels right, it really does. That's because it's human nature to think things used to be better. We all used to be children who had no idea what was going on. It's a natural thing for us to think things were better in the past. And I mean, that's not wrong, wrong. That's a normal way to feel. And it's fine for selling greeting cards and, and cookbooks, I guess. But when it comes to fixing the US food system, which is a big, complicated system with a critical job to do, nostalgia is always going to sell us short. Here's what the US food system's past is really made of. We had a mass outbreak of pellagra, an easily treated form of malnutrition that killed at least 100,000 Americans that we know of in the 20th century. Genocide, the enslavement of millions of people. Sharecropping is the normal state of affairs all over the United States, not just in the South as much as we may try and remember that today. The Ku Klux Klan in the South and white caps in sundown towns in the North. 
a feudal system in upstate New York that only ended because the peasants started fighting back. The United States used the army to steal a continent's worth of land from indigenous nations that were mostly unarmed civilians. And the farmers who took that land, far from being folksy little guys who were just trying to make a living, fully supported that conquest and destroying food systems that had already existed here before they came along so they could impose their own thing on the landscape. Supported doing things like burning vast native cornfields, trying to wipe out the bison and wild rice, damming salmon runs, and letting the chestnut forests die. And why? Because once those older food systems were destroyed, the only source of food left would be the farmers who were seizing all this land. All that destruction was pro-farmer. If you look underneath the little house on the prairie mythology and look at what people were really doing, settling America was not a folksy little guy endeavor. Homesteading was just a little piece of frosting on top of the cake. What was really going on is the people who took it on themselves to steal this land did it because of the maxim, they're not making any more of it. That's something you still hear pretty often today. In other words, the earliest settlers in America understood the financial benefits of seizing and holding land. Everyone has to eat, so land is power. And if you can seize and redistribute land into the hands of people who all support a certain political goal, like the expansion of the United States, and everyone else has to buy their food from those people who are all bought into that political project, you have firewalled yourself into tremendous political power. And that's what U.S. farm history is really about. Nostalgia isn't just not the answer. Nostalgia for that is disrespectful to humanity, and it is high time we did better. What happened in the past doesn't stay there. The human toll of how our food system was built is still with us. As I heard tell once upon a time from a friend of a friend who was involved, there were some white folks, well-meaning, trying to put a farmer's market into an inner-city district of Charlotte, North Carolina, and they were very surprised to find that the folks who already lived there were not interested in a farmer's market. And they said, why? We're just trying to save the food desert. Why don't you guys want food? And as someone put it, we don't want to give those farmers money because they took our land. They're the reason we're in this ghetto in the first place. That's one way the past lives on. But there's another way the past lives on too. Bison, chestnuts, salmon runs, wild rice, great fields of corn, squash, and beans growing together. Those things aren't gone and they don't have to stay on the margins. Tribes all over North America are doing the legwork to rehab food systems, and it's not a cute museum exhibit either. Well-tended wildlands pump out the food. Before they went more or less extinct in the early 1900s, the chestnut forests of Appalachia alone yielded 3 to 4 trillion calories per year. That's enough to meet all the carbohydrate needs, you know, starchy nuts, right? So that's more than enough to meet the carbohydrate and starch needs for all 332 million Americans alive today, twice. And that was all growing in a place that most folks today still consider unfarmable, Appalachia, because it's hilly, it's kind of cold, kind of wet. Restoring pre-colonial food systems isn't a pipe dream. It's very doable, and it can do quite a bit to improve our food security. It can also do a lot to restore the environment and make a lot of rural America habitable again. Livable, a place you can thrive, both for tribes and their neighbors. But when we think heal the food system, how many people look past the old saw of saving family farms? How often do we go all the way back and think, land back? Do we stop and think that maybe if we have this many farmers occupying stolen land that only became available in the first place thanks to military intervention, which was not cheap, and then the farmers who acquired that land and passed it around through sales and heredity and enjoyed the wealth and income and taxpayer-subsidized benefits that come from owning farmland, 
And if they've been benefiting from all that and they still can't make ends meet, maybe we could stop pretending that they deserve to have it. Maybe we could let those farms pass on and go back to the people who knew how to steward that land. Because those tribes are still there. Maybe we could reckon that it's okay to let failing operations go. That we've already done quite a lot for them. And it's okay to let propertyed white men fail, who make up the majority of landowners in the U.S. And that maybe there are better ways to build a food system than letting landed estates guilt trip us into bailing them out of their own mistakes generation after generation. We don't have to keep doing that. There's other people who can do this job. We could ask ourselves why, when we long for the past, why does that past stop 400 years ago? Can we grapple with why it is that Americana has such a short and shallow history? As long as we're trying to feel alive by connecting to the past, why not one that's actually rooted here? One that goes back 10 or 15,000 years instead of 400 and has never really been gone, but is waiting and eager to come back. And there are over 500 nations and tribes in this country with the institutional memory to make it happen. Nostalgia for the family farm has a funny way of centering landed white folks as the only people who ever really mattered. And that's not healthy. To make peace with ourselves and to make sure we can keep eating and stay alive through difficult times, we've got to broaden our horizons about who works the land, who grows food. And I want to be clear that tribal governments and land back have a huge role here, but it's also not cool to expect them to do all the work, right? I don't think it's fair to lay all of that responsibility on tribes. You don't take a bunch of land, junk it up, throw it back to the original owners and say, okay, you fix it now. That's not cool. So in addition to land back, we're also going to be talking a lot in this podcast and in further seasons, as we start talking more about solutions, about ways that everyone can get involved here. But I want to make it clear that land back is a big part of the solution. So that's one reason I think we need to step back from nostalgia and instead use labor, logistics, the history of how things really worked, and other nuts and bolts practical things as our guide when we try to fix the food system. The past wasn't actually great, so as long as we're using the past as our template, we're doomed to just keep repeating the same mistakes that got us here in the first place. We'll keep having top-down food systems that make bad food, wreck the environment, and abuse and exploit most of the people who actually do the work of growing and making food. So maybe nostalgia is not the answer. Here's another reason I think we want to check our nostalgia habit. Let me start by walking you through one of the first principles of organic farming. If you have a crop that is overcome by a pest or a disease or some kind of weed, the conventional approach is to think, well, I've got to kill that thing. It's an enemy, and you got to fight it. In organic agriculture, we're supposed to think differently. We remember that a healthy crop can usually outgrow whatever weeds, diseases, or pests it's up against, right? That means the pest and disease outbreaks don't come out of nowhere. They're usually a symptom of a deeper problem that was making your crop grow poorly in the first place. A crop that's healthy and well-managed and growing at a place that's right for it usually doesn't struggle like that. So when we have that kind of problem, instead of going, who do I need to kill? We ask, what made my crop vulnerable to this problem in the first place? Maybe the ground is a little bit wetter than the crop likes, so next time let's plant something better suited to the location. Maybe my crop rotation has been a little subpar and wasn't breaking up weeds life cycles the way it should, so I wound up nurturing such a thriving jimson weed population in my field that even a healthy crop couldn't keep up. What if I stopped thinking of that jimson weed as the enemy that's out to get me and started thinking of it as a symptom of a bigger problem? I could take it as an early warning that I messed up my crop rotation. A crop rotation that isn't right will eventually cause other problems like other weeds, buildup of soil disease, erosion, and so on. So, as a grown adult with agency and resources, I can stop blaming the jimson weed for existing. I can take the hint. 
and fix my practices so I'm no longer running my farm in such a way that makes it a perfect haven for Jimson weed. I don't have to let myself get stuck in a reactive war on pests and diseases mentality. I can pull on my big girl trousers, look at the bigger picture, set myself in the land I'm working with, and most importantly, the people I'm supposed to be serving with food, up for success. In the organic world, they call that holistic thinking. It's a whole picture thinking instead of just getting a laser focus on isolated problems. So here's the funny part. Organic agriculture didn't invent holistic thinking. They actually stole this idea from industrial safety and QA practices, where we call it root cause analysis. Root cause analysis just means that when you find a problem, there's probably at least one other underlying problem. So you keep digging until you find it and fix all the underlying problems. So a quick example would be if you uh, work at an airport and you find an airplane that had a little malfunction. And when it lands, you find out it was missing a bolt. The surface level solution is to just fix it, screw that bolt back on. But a root cause analysis is when you say, why was this bolt missing? The easy answer, you can just find the maintenance crew who worked on it last and yell at them for being lazy and bad at their jobs. But we don't actually know that they're bad at their jobs, do we? Let's look at their work schedules. Did they have enough time to do the whole job? Let's look at their toolkits. Were those bolts missing that day at the airport? Let's look at the leadership culture. Do supervisors punish crew members for reporting problems like this because they make a flight late? Let's look at our inspection routines. Maybe the checklist skipped that bolt assembly, so we should just fix the checklist to actually be thorough. The point is, it's really easy to knee-jerk solution your way through life. Root cause analysis forces us to stop, take a step back, and really figure out where the problems come from. It is not good enough to just replace the one missing bolt. You want to go back and make sure that you're not going to keep having missing bolts going forward. And that's what root cause analysis is for. Now, if you listen closely, you can find one important difference between holistic thinking and root cause analysis. And it's not one works with the land and the other with machines. And it's not one is natural and the other one is industrial or any kind of aesthetic judgment like that. It's a very practical difference. Root cause analysis includes people. And holistic frameworks for land management, in my experience, tend not to. Not on purpose, of course. They just kind of tend to forget that human choices can be a part of the problem. In my experience doing root cause analyses, human behavior is on the table. We talk about how financial incentives, political pressure, workplace culture, overly ambitious schedules, and other human problems affect our outcomes. People aren't just part of the root cause analysis. We're usually like one of the main focuses. And I'm sure that folks who advocate holistic thinking believe they include people, but in practice, I rarely see holistic practitioners really consider people to be part of the system to the extent that needs to be done. The focus of holistic thinking and planning in agriculture tends to be external. It's focused on weather, soil, crops, weeds, livestock, wildlife, and those things are all important. They should absolutely be in a systems analysis. But so should people. And in my experience, holistic thinking advocates tend to get really squeamish about human fallibility. And I get why. Because as soon as you start doing real talk on why people make mistakes, you have to start talking money, labor, power, pride, ambition, all those things that aren't supposed to exist in utopian movements. Like holistic thinking. They're scary to think about. Especially in organic and sustainable agriculture, where a lot of the motivation that draws people to them is an attempt to bring about a sense of emotional safety. Not that anyone really ever comes out and says, wow, <laughs> a lot of the sustainable food movement is mostly about people trying to fabricate a sense of safety in a complicated and uncertain world. But listen to how people talk about why they're interested and attracted to the idea of traditional small farming. People tend to say things like independence, stability, 
permanence community, and those things sound incredible. But independence is also a lovely euphemism for lack of accountability. Stability and permanence in real life too often tend to mean a permanent division between the haves and have-nots. And a lot of people, when they say community, really mean lots of people agreeing with me, which is not a healthy dynamic for a community to have. So this is what I mean when I say that the human element that you get in root cause analysis too often tends to be missing from holistic thinking as it's presented and used in agriculture. The organic and sustainable movements didn't just kind of steal their one good idea from the industrial world and pretend they made it up themselves. They actually made it worse when they did that. They struck out the part about human relationships and critical self-reflection because they're about nostalgia. And I think that's really, really significant. It's so important that when we have these really good tools that help us think critically, we don't just turn them on the outside world. We have to turn them back on ourselves. We have got to grapple with the role of human behavior at every level if we want to fix our food system. We have got to turn those tools of critical reflection back onto ourselves, even, and I would say especially, when what they might show us is scary. For example, what if we stopped talking about agribusiness the way conventional farmers think about pests and diseases, as an outside invader that we have to get rid of? What if we started looking at it as a symptom of a bigger problem? What if we stopped asking ourselves, how do we get rid of agribusiness? And we started asking ourselves, what is it about the traditional small family farm that is so vulnerable to agribusiness in the first place? Because once we do that, I think then we're cooking with gas. I think we could get somewhere productive with this. We could start by reckoning that the small family farm, as practiced in the United States, is, historically speaking, a freak of nature. There is little precedent for this way of farming anywhere else in the world probably because it's actually a terrible model for making a living, as many people have observed. Most farmers in world history lived in rather tightly clustered villages. They practiced trades rather than trying to be full-time farmers, and living in those tight villages made that mix of farming and trade work work. The American style of family farming, where the norm is big fields with isolated farmhouses on each parcel, and everyone's supposed to be farming or farm-adjacent at all times, that's weird. I can't think of a single other time in world history that people have ever done that. The fact that the U.S. family farm model is that weird has important logistical, financial, and cultural consequences that we haven't really started talking about because we're so obsessed with trying to pretend that it's normal. What if we took an honest look about how much capital it takes and just general resources that it takes to grow food and manage land responsibly, and then we compared that side by side to the scale of a household budget? Because if we're talking a family farm, that's what we're working with. It's a household budget. It's a household budget with extra property, extra wealth, but it's still a household budget, right? What if we took the demands of responsible land management and put it side to side with what a household is actually capable of and got honest with ourselves about how maybe growing food and household budgets are on different orders of magnitude? Maybe it's not responsible to ask a family to do that. And that's also not a modern agribusiness problem. Traditional farm communities tend to use really creative techniques that manage village lands more like one big parcel, where individuals or families are in charge of a sub-piece and they manage the whole thing together. Everyone kind of has their part to play, rather than a mass of individual family farms the way we tend to think of it today. Because that larger scale approach, with a lot more people, just makes more sense logistically. People already knew that in the Middle Ages and earlier. Medieval domains, for all the exploitation that came along with feudalism, this is not a pro-feudalism podcast, for all of that, the folks who worked those lands did work together because they understood that that's what it took to get the job done. They did not try to have 
dozens or hundreds of family farms <laughs> separated on the estate. Even communities that don't practice agriculture in the way we typically think of it today also understood the importance of scale. So again, it's not a modern thing. If you're using fire to manage wildlands, you all get together and you coordinate that. At the large scale, up to entire watersheds. Even if you wanted to do that on individual plots, good luck keeping fire corralled like that. Small plots just don't make sense logistically. That's why I think we make a serious mistake when we think of large-scale land management as a new and modern idea. That is actually how most people in human history have operated their land, at scale, not on little family plots. I think the way various red scares got Americans convinced that lots of people running one big operation together is something that communists invented in the 20th century instead of the normal way that almost everyone in human history has managed land because it just makes more sense, should go down as one of the greatest PR snow jobs of all time. Once you see family farming as the historical oddity that it is, a lot of things really clear up. For example, maybe dividing land management up into nuclear families is why agribusiness is so entrenched in the first place. Even with modern technology, it just takes more people and bandwidth than a nuclear family has to manage land and grow food well. I've seen this many times working out with family farms. They're really stretched. Even with all this modern labor-saving technology, there's still a bandwidth problem. There's just too many jobs to do when it comes to responsible land management and not a lot of people. It's going to cause problems. There is really nothing you can do besides get more people on the job. And when a family farm does that, then they have employees and we call them corporate. There's just really no winning in that model, right? So if you have a situation where you're running land with nuclear families, most of them are going to need some kind of outside help. In a society like ours, where most of us don't do clan size, extended families, tribes, or villages in any logistically meaningful sense, that drives farmers to get that help from somewhere else. The only real source of logistical support in today's U.S., and even through much of U.S. history, thanks to how rapidly people dispersed from their families of origin to seize land, it's agribusiness. People rely on equipment dealers, feed and seed suppliers, livestock integrators like Smithfield and Tyson, and so on. And throughout U.S. history, they always have. Because of the way we've moved so fast across the continent to steal it all. To be clear, agribusiness is every bit as awful and exploitative as we think it is, but we also have to be frank with ourselves. It's family farms themselves that create that logistical void. The American family farm cannot exist without some kind of outside support, and we have no other way to do that besides agribusiness. And we never really have. That's because our agriculture didn't arise organically out of the earth to form subsistence communities. U.S. agriculture is an imperial project, and it always has been. It's about seizing land and using it to grow cash crops to sell somewhere else. And to do that, you need a network of millers, feedlots, distributors, and other middlemen. Agribusiness is not a modern problem. It is baked into the United States' birth. We were overproducing corn by at least the 1790s, and the Ohio Valley was full of feedlots by the 1830s. None of this stuff is brand new problems. It is baked into the way our country works. And we're not going to be able to bring ourselves to do better until we can be honest with ourselves about that. How our social relationships have led us to operate that way. How they keep us stuck that way. And get real with ourselves about the need to build some new social relationships that are going to let us break out of that agribusiness cycle. We have to be frank with ourselves about how today's agribusiness didn't start in the 20th century. It's just the natural conclusion to how the United States has always worked. We have to be honest with ourselves about how today's food woes are deeper than bad supply chains. They're baked into our customs, our property law, our beliefs about what agriculture is supposed to look like. In a very real way, I don't think agribusiness is the root of the problem in our food system. 
It's just a gnarly, obvious, ugly, easy to point to system. The real problem is kind of within us. It's how we're letting 400 years of a broken culture and nostalgia bamboozle us into overlooking real solutions that would actually let us make agribusiness obsolete. Agribusiness is not unbeatable. The money, the land, the skilled workers, all the things we need to do better than it and replace it are well within our reach. We just keep failing to use them because we're so busy letting nostalgia take us for a ride. So that's another reason I'm making a podcast about debunking agrarian myths and nostalgia. It's not just factually misleading. Agrarian nostalgia puts us in all the wrong mindsets for solving our problems. Nostalgia is about thinking we already have the answers and we just have to keep trying the same things over and over because it's totally going to work one of these days, right? Nostalgia is also a really powerful tool for individuals or demographics that may have historically been powerful to keep themselves powerful instead of facing accountability for maybe how their own behavior got us here. So nostalgia as a platform for fixing the food system isn't just factually wrong. It's also manipulative. It's a tool for dodging accountability. We can even see that drive to avoid accountability in how certain approaches to food reform have taken root cause analysis which is a wonderful, crisp tool that we can use to work out as groups of people how to be accountable to one another so we can give each other the support we need to do hard things. They took that tool and they turned it into a warm, fuzzy, holistic circle jerk aid. Ugh. The bottom line, nostalgia is popular because it's easy. Real solutions are hard. In theory, we all like real solutions, so that's why I'm doing a whole podcast series debunking a lot of nostalgia and romantic myths that keep us away from real practical solutions in the food system. All right, so we've banished nostalgia from how we talk about the food system. What does that look like? If we're not waxing poetic about the days of yore, what is there to talk about? I'm so glad you asked, because there's a lot. Letting go of nostalgia frees us up to talk about so much real stuff. Who actually did the work of farming? Who does today? How has it changed over time? Who owns farmland and why? How does owning land make your life different compared to the many Americans in U.S. history who worked other people's land? That is, people who worked for farmers. How did farmers' financial interests drive the mechanization of agriculture? How do we make peace with the fact that U.S. agriculture became super automated because, at the end of the day, enough farmers wanted it that way? Who are family farmers? If we've been hearing for over a century that they're dwindling and dying out, how are they still 95% of the farmers in America? How do we square the dying poor family farmer myth with the fact that out there in the real world, family farmers have made more money after you subtract farm losses and debt service than non-farmers every single year since 1997. Should we stop and think about how fewer than 3% of U.S. farm families are below the median income in the United States? Not the poverty line. Fewer than 3% of farmers are below median income. Any way you slice it, farmers are substantially wealthier than most Americans. So once you start looking at the actual numbers, money, political power behind agriculture, it starts to raise a lot of questions. And you could go your whole life without knowing that if the information you get about agriculture is nostalgic yearning, pretty pictures of fields, and no data. That's what nostalgia does. It doesn't just hide the ugly sides of the past. The wistful vibe that we have hides some really important information about the present. So it's not enough to just do away with the nostalgia and be upfront about the U.S.'s farm history. We've got to engage with what's really going on in farm country right now. So let me lay out some practices that I'm going to use to do that in this podcast series. 
Again, it's not enough to just say, no nostalgia. You have to commit to what you are going to talk about instead, right? So, I'm going to use data, not anecdotes. Don't get me wrong, I'll tell you some stories, but we're getting our information from data. Data alone isn't enough, though. I'm going to use my experience working in agriculture to put the data into context. Without the context, the story and the data gets lost. Here's a great example. Farm income. From 2010 to 2016, the median farm lost money, somewhere between $118 to $2,250, depending on the year. And that certainly doesn't sound good, does it? Now, a lot of writers, having delivered the bad news, seem to feel their job is done. I disagree. I think those numbers are the start of the story, not the end. What happens if you start digging? What if we asked ourselves, who can afford to lose money every year? Because between you and me, it ain't poor people. Do we ask how those scary statistics might look different if we accounted for how much farm income farmers simply don't report so they don't have to pay taxes on them? This practice, by the way, is known variously as white-collar crime, cheating the public, and tax fraud. IRS audits and other financial models have found that large-scale commercial farms tend to shave about a third of their income off their taxes. And small-scale farmers actually shave off a higher percentage. Farm losses also bring hefty tax benefits, which is just more motivation to hide income. Or perhaps even to start a farm with no intention of ever growing anything at all just for the tax shelter. That's what I mean by data in context. I can't tell you how many serious pieces I've seen by very serious authors that interview a celebrity farmer. The celebrity farmer does a little poor mouth song and dance about how hard agriculture is, and the very serious author takes it all in verbatim. They never even do basic fact checks on the encounter, like ask the farmer how many acres they own, then look up the average land values in that county and do the math. What they do instead, and I see this over and over again, is fixate on visuals. A classic in the genre that maybe most of us are familiar with, Maintenance Phase actually did a nice little feature on this book, is uh, Michael Pollan in the classic Omnivore's Dilemma. Pollan takes us, the reader, to meet Joel Salatin and is just absolutely obsessed with Salatin's little straw hat. Pollan really wants us to know that Joel Salatin is the real deal, and we can tell because of that hat. Being charitable, I guess maybe in the universe Pollan grew up in, straw hats emit some kind of bullshit repelling force field, which must be a real hoot to see in action, but on this podcast we don't do that. At Farm to Tabor, we believe a good argument takes more than a funny little hat. We use data, and we put that data into context. Disembodied facts are not enough, we have to use data to paint a full and coherent picture of how wealth and power actually work in the food system, even if that goes against conventional wisdom. So that's my promise to you, the listeners. I love me some anecdotes, and I'll tell you stories from time to time, but when I make an argument about how the food system actually works, story time is over. I use data. I've been out there working in the fields and with farmers long enough to be able to put that data into context. Here's my second tool for banishing cobwebby thinking about the food system. Here at Farm to Tabor, we don't put farmers at the center of the universe. They don't own the food system, and we shouldn't want them to. I understand that might sound shocking, but here's how I look at it. If you're one of the one or two million or so families who own farmland in the United States today, you already won the lottery. We've spent 400 years stealing land from indigenous people, and then, once our nation acquired it, the wealthiest landowners got busy squeezing everyone else off. Often very violently. That's what the clan was for. That's why the rest of us live in cities now. If you look back at U.S. history, the public did not abandon agriculture. Wealthier farmers pushed everyone else off. Because then they got more land to themselves, and it put more people in cities who would have to buy food from them. 
So when we reform the food system, there are only three things we should worry about. Everyone should get enough food. And people should be choosing that food themselves rather than getting those rations assigned by someone else. That's thing number one. Number two, everyone who does the work in the food system, from line cooks to crop pickers, should get paid a living wage. And three, agriculture should leave clean water and healthy land. That's it. If the people who currently own our nation's farmland want to participate in that, great, more power to them. Depending on the region, somewhere between 5 and 20% of farmers really have their head in the game. I've actually learned a lot from a lot of my colleagues who are farmers. And I respect their work by being honest about what normal looks like in the agricultural business. But those three goals, good food, good jobs, good environment, saving family farmers has nothing to do with any of those. Farmers that I personally really respect who have the chops to adapt to climate change, treat workers and the land and consumers right, don't need to be saved because they're good at their job. When we talk about the need to save family farmers, we need to understand that these folks are already wealthier than most of us in the United States. So what do we think we're really doing when we're saving them? Let's just start there before we talk about saving family farmers. If anybody wants to go there, great, but ask yourself what you're really doing. I think it's important to understand that family farming isn't the one true way to farm. The U.S. actually has a really strong history of farms that are worker-owned, tribe-owned, and or function as utilities. They're still out there, and they're economically competitive with agribusiness. We just don't talk about them because we're so obsessed with family farms as the one true way to do it that we lose sight of everything else. I'm excited to talk about those alternatives in a future episode. They're super cool, but I need you to understand before we do that, worker-owned and utility-oriented farms are not easy to pull off. Farming is complex. <laughs> Making food is complex. These are real jobs. This is not the kind of thing that you just kind of like do as a retirement project. So logistically, they're challenging in and of themselves, but there's an additional layer where we find it extra hard because we're so used to thinking of agriculture as something that's supposed to be done a certain way, nostalgically on land acquired through inheritance. So before we can meaningfully try other things like worker-owned and utility-oriented farms, we've got to really sit with how much damage the hereditary land system has done to the land economically to us as a people and to the way we think. We have to really sit with that before we start running into alternatives, or we're going to keep replicating the problems. The things I have to say about family farming are probably going to come off as pretty harsh to people who have not worked in agriculture. As someone who has lived that life and seen what I've seen, I've watched firsthand over and over the damage and the degradation that comes when the most important qualification in who gets to be a farmer is who your daddy is. I'm done with it. I'm done pretending that inheritance is a good way to run a food system. If we actually want to make a food system that works for everybody, we've got to stop thinking that a good food system equals family farmers. We already figured out a long time ago that heredity is not a good way to pick leadership, right? It's high time that we apply that to the food system as well. And one more thing, aesthetics are part of communication. I don't use folksy music to make this podcast. Don't get me wrong. I like bluegrass, country's got its moments, and I like pretty pastoral landscapes and cute pictures of lambs as much as anyone else. I've got two eyeballs and a heart. But when we're telling stories about agriculture, folksy vibes can turn into a crutch real fast. Books, blogs, documentaries, and other media about agriculture are filled with flimsy claims and no evidence, and they get away with it. Why? Folksy vibes. Why ask questions of things that feel so right? As human beings, we're drawn to nature. We like seeing trees and grass. Cute baby animals fill us with dopamine, and 
that is all right and proper. Those things are good. We should like trees and grass and feel invested in clumsy little critters with big dumb baby eyes. These are objectively good things. The danger comes when they get used as window dressing on stuff that isn't true, that is manipulative. The nostalgia narrative of agriculture makes it so easy to make up stories about how things used to be great if you were white and wealthy. Slap some pictures of beautiful fields and cute baby goats on there and a whole lot of us seem happy to just take that all at face value because it feels so right. That's how most media about agriculture is made. So I understand that as a content creator doing agricultural stuff, that's what I'm expected to do. The thing is, I don't want to. It feels gross. And I don't mean it feels kitschy or tacky. I love kitsch and I'm the tackiest person I know. The reason I don't like making folksiness part of my content is, like, like you know that thing where if you flip over a shark so it's belly up, it just passes out? As a content creator, that's what it feels like I'm doing to listeners when I pull out bluegrass stock music or something like that for an agriculture podcast. It makes me feel like, well, I must not have a really good argument, so let me just paper it over with some vibes. You should expect more from content creators. And I know I expect more of myself. My job is to deliver good info. So the less I lean on vibes, the more I hold myself to actually telling good stories about the world. That said, I had to use some music. So I decided, hey, why not do cyberpunk? This podcast is about how the dystopia of the U.S. food system is even more dystopian than we thought, and that's pretty cyberpunk. I'm also just bored with seeing agriculture treated as a holdover from the past. It is every bit as modern, financialized, and of the present moment as crypto scams and skyscrapers. That's also very cyberpunk. What would it look like if we sat with that reality? What if we let agriculture be part of the present and something whose future we still have to figure out? That's what I wanted this podcast to be about, and folksy vibes just don't lend themselves to that kind of thinking. Folksy vibes invite us to enjoy how great it is to already have all the answers. Cyberpunk invites us to think about how far we have to go just to find the right questions. So as long as we got to pick a vibe, we could do worse than cyberpunk here. Well, that's the intro for this season. I thought it would be a nice way to prepare new listeners for the experience and reconnect with folks who've been listening for a while. Welcome to a weird podcast about agriculture. That intro was super serious, but most of this upcoming season is just going to be fun little chats with friends and colleagues, and we're going to have a good time. There will be some serious deep dives into serious topics, and we'll also do some episodes that are just fun because you can't be serious all the time. And the last couple of years have been wild for everyone, so even when it's serious, we're going to do a lot of that thing where you laugh so you don't cry. We're going to process this trauma, folks, and we're going to do it together. So that's Farm to Tabor the farm podcast that doesn't shame people who don't work in agriculture about how they're not experts in agriculture. And we take questions. If there's something you've always been dying to know about agriculture, drop a line and we'll try and do some listener Q&A. If you'd like to help support the show, you can tell your friends it's cool, rate us on your relevant podcast apps, and or come find us on Patreon where we have early access to new episodes and some bonus content. Thanks for listening. We had a great time making this and we hope you had a good time listening. Mm-hmm.